Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Well, here it is, 2.30 in the morning on Saturday. I can't sleep. I usually listen to radio, usually talk radio when I'm going to bed and lulls me to sleep, but not working tonight. And I thought, okay, what kind of music would I like to listen to? Uh, classical? Some folk? But I always find that when I'm looking for something for sleeping, there'll be a song or two that works, and then suddenly it gets a little bit too noisy. So that doesn't work. Ocean sounds? for a little while too and then they become a little bit on the annoying side so I decided I'll do the program since I recorded anyway it doesn't matter when I record it exactly so I'll record it at 2 30 in the morning maybe it's in accord with the fact that I've had a very intransigent mental block this whole week about doing the program I've had other weeks where the subject for the podcast just wasn't coming to me even though there are a myriad of subjects within the discussion of the Catholic faith, how one feels about it, how one looks at it, how one interprets it, how one obeys it or not. But this time, the whole thing felt really impassable, trying to come up with something to talk about. The other day, I was lying in bed. It was actually the day before this night when I couldn't sleep. And I was looking at this icon I have of the Sacred Heart, and I felt nothing, even that which so often evokes inspiration generated creative static. Now I know, and my good friend Candy has said, feeling isn't the most important thing, and I totally agree with her. Action, intellect, assent, faith, these are things that do not necessarily depend on feeling, but I need it for some kind of creative context, if you will. And for some reason, I'm bothered more about what I see around me. Is what I see what is actually happening? What I see is a world in staggering corruption that is sold to us day after day as good, but worse, in which many of the victims of the corruption will insist that the world around us is in a good place, despite the darkness consuming even them. Someone sent me a Fulton Sheen Life is Worth Living program from over 50 years ago in which he effectively prophesied about an elite, not an economic one as is always proffered. It's the kind of elite that is a small group with great power and a bullhorn tearing down those few things that human beings have successfully set as ideals that are in fact objective and good and progressive in that they advance the good. They rant, these elite, they rage, they accuse, and they walk away from the wreckage they cause with smiles on their faces because they now control reality itself and the people to whom they sold the bill of goods. It used to be that a university, a newspaper, a radio program, a television program, a government, a church, and the people served by these outlets were all in agreement about what was true and savory 
and all together they pursued it. There were some disagreements at the peripheries, but the overall objectives, ideas of truth and reality were basically the same. But now, the outlets that used to serve the objective truth advance agendas which only a few years ago all eyes, or most eyes, saw as askew, as destructive, inconsistent with claims of true solidarity, and internally inconsistent. And those entities are no longer our servants. They are our masters. They don't help us discover what is true, but tell us what they think is true, or worse, want to be true, and restrict any counter view which suggests that their narrative is simply wrong. They tell us that truth is relative until they determine otherwise, the key to which is that they have the power and expansive platform upon which to enforce their truth. I will leave you to pick the circumstances under which you are also seeing what I see, if you are seeing what I see. But me, I'm finding it, it almost impossible to avoid seeing a darkness in our society that transcends any I have seen in the many moments of traumatic history, stuff through which I have myself lived. The first for me as a kid was the Kennedy assassination, the end of post-World War II hopefulness, and wended its way through the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and moved into the post-Vietnam deconstruction of the United States, the magazine announcement of the death of God, 9-11. I mean, just listen to the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire, and you get a sense of what the baby boomer generation already has lived through, and then the rest of the generations have joined with us, since most of what is called the greatest generation, who used to be ahead of us, are now gone. What's the difference now? The U.S. used to be a place where centralized power in a few was steadfastly avoided by the nature of our founding documents and the disposition of the citizenry that agreed with those founding principles. But that's gone. We're going the way of Rome. Yes, Rome in a shorter time. The glory of Rome that was not glory at all. We are in a time of the glory of the state and the arms of the state and the blindness or concession of the rest of us. It was in my gloom, clearly, in my gloom, that I realized there was a similarity between the bad of then and the bad of now. And now I get a little hopeful because the thing that happened in both times is the interruption by the ultimate good. He, Jesus, the ultimate good who breaks into time and offers us the relief from the corruption all around us, a corruption of original sin and that of our constant personal sin. A side thought, or a gloomy side thought, it's amazing how this modern society goes so far as to eradicate even the timeline of Christ to the memory of society. I mean, we used to demarcate history into B.C. and A.D., before Christ, 
and Anno Domini, or after the Lord. Now we have BCE, before the common error, and CE, the common error. Human beings just can't help but make themselves the center of the universe, as if we have control over life and death and time. But the time before Christ, B.C., in my verbiage, it was brutal at the hands of other human beings who had unrelenting power, a dictatorship of thought and movement enforced by Rome whose glory was the self-promoting province of a few with ultimate control over the citizenry. It puts me in mind of the oft-quoted phrase from Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, Hobbes writing centuries after Christ came, and not particularly, I think, Christ-centered. You have heard it quoted out of context, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I suppose, for all the technology and comforts comparative in places like the U.S., we could still say that. I mentioned Thomas Hobbes with reservation because he apparently believed in government as a solution. He believed that human beings could make a compact, an agreement to live in harmony relatively, as I understand it. He was right, up to a point, that the United States, as founded posited a beneficial government structured for the people it served and in which all citizens agreed to participate with representatives standing for them. It was a contract indeed, but it was a contract derived from divine principles, cooperating with divine principles, so not really of human making only of human implementation, with the foundation being principles of divine inspiration. Hobbes later made the observation of what was true then, back in the time of Christ, before Christ, and what has always been true, and certainly was true before Christ was born, that life was nasty, short, and brutish, the latter mostly at the hands of other human beings, as I previously noted. One man could kill another for a mere objection. God had been preparing the world, often unbeknownst to most, except the prophets and some few good people who kept the faith. Some believed the transformation would mean a very human restoration of their political fortunes. Others understood that it was the transformation of souls that would be the result. The change would be internal and would affect the external, and that was not necessarily immediately satisfying. What were many people looking for? They were looking for a mystical soldier to conquer their enemies and place them in the place of their enemies. Hopefully they would then themselves be benevolent and only for the good, but of course nature doesn't allow human beings to do that. Always when a human being takes over or a group of human beings take over, there is the tendency to lord it over the other, as it were, to tell the other what to do and when to do it, and to punish for the failure, but only because it's based on that group's relativistic ideology. 
which is pronounced as truth. They were still seeing the earth and themselves as the center. They were looking for a full-grown adult, a god in their image, no more or less than the gods that supported their enemies. What did they get? They got a baby. The word came to earth as a baby. Heaven broke into time in human birth. Only those who could look to God's ways and not their own could begin to comprehend, albeit imperfectly, the enormity of the action of God the Father in the issuance of his Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's my mood, I don't know, but I'm thinking it's really beyond my mood that it doesn't help as much as I would like to picture the birth of Jesus, having myself been to Israel even having seen the geographical context into which he joined his creatures, there they all were in a literal desert. It's still a desert. A couple is forced to go from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, when I was there 2,000 plus years later, I went by bus. It's about 70 miles. I thought at the time how impossible walking or riding on a donkey or a camel, must have been in those days. Mary was pregnant. There were dangers along the way, not only of nature, but of opportunistic human beings, as thus it has always been. Now they just go to Nordstrom's and take things. Such are we human beings when objective truth and goodness is suspended. Nazareth, from whence they came, the town of Mary, was small. Bethlehem, to which they were going, was small. They're still small. The spaces between are enormous now, and were even more so then. There is no place really for them to be when they get to what their government requires them to go for a census. They have to take what they can get for a place for her to bear the Son of God. People don't see, they don't want to see, that something transfiguring, transforming, Formative is about to happen, or the opportunity for them to be transformed inside, in their souls. But then, the most profound thing does happen. True God becomes us, true man. He is both true God and true man at once, and completely each. The one natural thing that announced this wonderment was a star that, again, only a very few understood as an announcement. We call them the wise men. Through all the muck of time and war and human evil and depravity, they saw the truth. These few, the Alpha and the Omega, who cared enough to try to change our hearts and minds. Heaven came to us, and then he grew up and walked among us. At the age of 30, he spoke and worked miracles and told parables. He was and he is the kingdom of God. But most of mankind, instead of seeing the body of Christ, the literal body of Christ, rejected him, and worse, they killed him, but heaven wasn't going to be defeated. Heaven rose again, 
and denominated those faithful who would help people see what they could not see on their own. And so Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles and disciples, the priesthood, their acolytes, kept reminding people of the fruit of heaven and the promise of paradise. And every year at this very time, we today celebrate the birth of heaven on earth. But yes, it is hard to see because the unbelief of the world and also because of the unbelief within us. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Both are true. I want to believe, but my belief is so hard. Help that unbelief, the unbelief that blinds us. So what did the word do? What did heaven in the second person of the Trinity do to help keep our belief coming and going strong? Before he died and resurrected, he gave us a special something in the form of ordinary bread and wine. He gave us his very self, his very essence. He showed us the mass in the Passover meal. He consecrated the bread and the wine so that it became him on the spot and said that it would always be so until the end of time. Every year when we reenact the day of his birth, the day in a festival of reds and greens of trees, flowers, bells, and incense, at the heart of that reenaction is the central moment of every Mass the transubstantiation of the bread and wine 2,000 plus years after he first consecrated himself. Every day in that mass, in churches all over the world, heaven meets the earth. And here I am, so bogged down. I'm so bogged down, even as I speak of it now, at two, almost three o'clock in the morning now, with all the ugliness I see around me and all the anger and fear that I often feel surrounding the ugliness I see, that I constantly fail, even as I sit in the sanctuary, maybe 12 feet from the action on the altar, heaven meeting earth. And then heaven comes into my very body when I receive the transformed host, who is the second person of the Trinity. I believe that I Every one of us who professes the faith would be liberated utterly if we not only understood this reality intellectually, but somehow absorbed it into our very beings. I'm writing about seeing someone, capital S, seeing him in a way that I don't often myself have been having a hard time all week seeing for myself. I know it will make all the difference to my life in a way nothing else can. So why the resistance to embracing that heaven met and continues to meet earth in the person of Jesus Christ? Human contradiction, I guess. Pride, perhaps, because such a certainty of the awesome truth requires absolute trust and abandonment spiritual blindness because the light of heaven meeting earth is in fact so bright that I should be able to see it, that it should not be invisible to me, that there's this universal offer, this gift of salvation, that all we need to do 
is to accept. How often do we repeat it here in this program, and how often is it repeated by all sorts of people far more theologically sound than I am, far more committed than I am, that we accept it the way Mary did with a unilateral yes in a more pragmatic way in the face of an act by which God redeemed us, it's not really good to be like me, a glass half-empty girl. For then all I see is that which we lack as human beings, not the one thing, the one person with a capital P who has already offered us a restoration to original holiness by his act of salvation. But that restoration is a door through which each of us, using our free will, must enter. Awesome though God is, he forces nothing upon us. He has already come to me. I have to approach him where heaven meets earth. Where is that again? It is at the Mass, bolstered by the liturgy, bolstered by my prayer, the prayer with which I also mightily struggle in community and outside of it. As I speak, we are still in Advent. It's not just a waiting time or a waiting room, although I have to admit I tend to treat it that way. I don't like this time of year. Even here in the warmer climes of California, it's dark too early. There are more overcast days, cool nights, and I'm in need of something glorious, something hopeful. What can be more hopeful than the reminder with Christmas of an act of the purest love, the willingness of God? to become one of his creatures and to join in the darkness we created while becoming the light in that darkness. I'm talking to you in this podcast today and other days too, but particularly today. But today especially, I seem to be more remonstrating with myself. There can be nothing more than what has been done for us. For this was and is the all Nothing prevents me from seeing that but me and my inclination toward sin and reluctance to follow Christ, despite my protestations to the contrary. So pray for me, and I will pray for you. For myself, as I try to go back to bed, I pray that he opens my mind and heart and that it stays, both stay open. And that my yes means yes and stays yes, because where heaven meets earth, that's where I want to be. Well, thank you for listening, if you've listened. And if you're liking this program, please feel free to make a comment. It will help me also if I can get some subjects. I had a call from my good friend who gave me a couple of subjects today. I wrote a couple of notes listening to her. I will give her credit. But... I hope to have a little more ease thinking of what I will talk about next week. In the meantime, take care.